If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And it's been a cold week, amen? So won't you just, the person around you, front and back, we're kind of in a, still a little bit of don't touch me zone with COVID, but the people around you, hopefully your, your family or friends, won't you just kind of give them a little rub on the back and warm them up a little bit? Might just need a little warming up, a little bit. That helps. You're already feeling a little better. We're continuing a series called Mic Drop. I think this is week number five. And if you've been a part of this series so far, you know we're looking at moments in Jesus' life when he said things and did things that caused people to take notice, to stop and pay attention. A couple weeks ago, we learned of Jesus healing a woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. And part of the healing of her was that Jesus simply walked by and she reached out and touched his garment, his robe, and immediately she was healed. But the point of that message and the point of that mic drop moment was that power went out from Jesus to someone who believed, who had been struggling for 12 years, who had spent all of her resources, all of her earnings on medical care, and there was no help. And the idea was, what were you doing 12 years ago? And could you imagine 12 years of suffering? 12 years ago was 2010. Well, that's, that's a good decade or so. And a lot of you might remember what you were doing 10 years ago. I struggled 12 years ago. I struggled to remember. Well, this morning, I want us to go back even a little further. Because in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is going to heal yet again another woman. But she has not been struggling for 10 years or 12 years. But she has been struggling for 18 years. Now, what were you doing 18 years ago? Some of our young people in the room weren't even alive yet. Uh, some of us with a little more gray hair in our head, we can't remember 18 days ago, much less 18 years ago. Uh, 18 years ago would have been 2004. Uh, George W. Bush would have been seeking his second presidential term. Uh, you might remember the Athens-Greece Olympics were held back in the birthplace of the Olympics. 2004 seems like decades, or it was decades actually ago. Seems like a long time. Can you imagine then, if you were in a situation where for that length of time, from now all the way back to 2004, you were slowly experiencing your body become more and more deformed. You were experiencing your body becoming more and more progressively bent. The woman in our passage for today, she has a bent over, doubled over bending of her spine and her back. And it's 18 years in the making such that at the point she meets Jesus, the scripture says she's not able to straighten herself upright. She wouldn't be able to look people in the eye. She wouldn't be able to give a proper hug. She wouldn't be able to do the many, many things that we do without even thought. And for 18 years, she seeks help. And for 18 years, 
she just finds herself more and more doubled over. How would you experience the world if for 18 years your life was constantly disabled? For 18 years, your task would be modified because of your infirmity. Would your view of God change in those 18 years? Would your view of God's healing change in those 18 years? Well, this is the scene from Luke chapter 13 that we find ourselves in. If you have found Luke 13, I invite you to look to verse 10. And if you found it, say, I've got it. Let's hear God's word together. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, been disa- had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This morning, I want to look at the plight of the woman, the anger of the ruler, And the responses of the Lord Jesus. Three places to focus. And then at the close of our message, we're going to have a special time of prayer for any who need prayer over their bodies or over the loved ones they have who need prayer for their healing. Let's begin with the plight of this woman. Now, the scene is such that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. A synagogue, for those who may not know, is the Jewish equivalent of a church or a house of worship. It's not the temple where God's dwelling was, but it's a place in various communities where people came to gather for worship. And it would also be a place where you would have public debate or even governmental officials making decisions. And in the synagogue, there would be a ruler, but there could also be a priest. And from time to time, you would even have a traveling rabbi, a teacher. And the scripture says that Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. Now, this is not unusual. Throughout most of Jesus's ministry, whenever the Sabbath came, that's the worship day from Friday night to Saturday night, Jesus would go into the synagogue as a Jewish man and he would worship in the Jewish way, the Jewish community. And at times he would be called upon to teach as a teacher of the day. And so he's teaching in the synagogue as was his practice, as was his custom. 
And from that synagogue, there is a woman who will certainly catch his attention. Now, we don't know from the account whether she was a one-time guest or an every-week attender. But from what I gather, at least from the interpretation of Scripture, I gather she was known to the synagogue. It could have been that she was a regular, a every-week, kind of like some of you. When the doors are open, you're here. She would have been known in the community as a woman who for 18 years, they have all observed her life change. They might have known her in her younger days. They might have known her when she was upright, perfectly healed and perfectly healthy. They might have known her as someone that had a wonderful physical nature to her that she was able to do so many things and work so hard. But over those 18 years, they have observed her change. Slowly but surely, she becomes more and more bent over, disabled, crippled. 18 years of suffering they have observed in this synagogue. Verse 11 tells us that she has a disabling spirit for these 18 years, that her body is bent over, that she could no longer fully straighten herself. Some of the doctors who have looked at this passage say that she has a progressive curvature of the spine. She has a deformity that has caused her vertebrae to slowly but surely open up and continue to bend her body. Her bone is no longer what it once was, strong, but now it's completely burdened under the strain of her deterioration. Her body has slowly become less her own. And if any of you have experienced progressive, chronic illness, you know that at some point you see it getting worse and worse and worse. I think that's what was happening to this woman. She can't be what she once was. And Jesus actually tells us more about what she's experiencing, that she's actually under a curse. Verse 16 tells us that she, as a daughter of Abraham, has been bound by Satan for 18 years. And I don't want to dive too much into the potentiality of demonic force and demonic influence over our bodies but Jesus is telling us straight forth and take note when Jesus mentions something I believe it's true that he is diagnosing that she has not only been physically deformed but there is a spiritual influence that is controlling what she has in her body that the enemy of God is binding her that this illness has disabled her she is most certainly under a curse And so the question from at least this part of the passage is why? I mean, why would she be the recipient of this satanic bond? Why would she be the recipient of this disabling spirit? Why would she be the recipient of this infirmity of 18 years, nearly two decades? Why? And you might ask, well, why does anybody get sick? Why does anybody suffer? Why do chronic illnesses even occur? Some have said, well, that must just be God's punishment. Let me just help us here, brothers and sisters. Be very cautious. Be very cautious 
If you observe someone in your family or in your life or you yourself that you have gone through a physical deformity, a physical brokenness, a disabling spirit, be very cautious of putting that at the hand of God. Very rarely do we see in Scripture the God of the universe, the creator of all things, infirming people, breaking people physically. Now we have the example, of course, of the plague in Egypt where God set forth a plague to hit all of the Egyptian people where they were covered in boils. That was certainly part of God's judgment. That's an occasion. We certainly have the occasion of Job where God allows the enemy Satan to bring boils all over and sores all over Job's body. God allowed it. But we need to be very cautious and be very careful at putting God as the author of pain and suffering and disease. God, as the creator, is not punishing us with physical deformities and disease and sickness. The root of all that we experience in these mortal bodies is from the the cause of sin. If we look carefully at Adam and Eve in the garden, in their status before the fall, they are healthy, they are happy, they're going to live forever, they're not sick, they're not sad, they're not broken. But after the curse, after the fall, after Adam sins, then you have the absolute effects of what sin does to us. And if you go to heaven... And you read in the scripture, the descriptions of heaven, we know there are no tears, there are no suffering, there is no sickness, there is no death. We return back to what God originally designed and it's a life that is not tainted with all the physical limitations that we have. We need to be very cautious, friends, of blaming God when things in these bodies go wrong. The better view, the right view, the biblical view, when we experience suffering and pain and disabling kinds of experiences is not to blame God, but to look forward to the restoration that God has indeed in store for us. It's to look at this momentary affliction as simply that, a temporary impact. I I once heard it said, There are no hospitals in heaven. Whew, that'll preach, won't it? Are y'all doing okay, nine o'clock? All right. There are no hospitals in heaven. There is no need for treatment. There is no need for chemo. There is no need for eyeglasses. There is no need for the kinds of things that we have to deal with on this side of heaven because there's no hospitals in heaven because there's no sickness in heaven. There's no illness in heaven. There's no disabling spirits in heaven. In the glorification of heaven, we are as God intended us to be. But for the moment, that we are here on this earth due to the impact of sin. Some of our own account, some just because of the fallenness of the world, we will experience suffering. This woman has experienced suffering for 18 years, but her life is about to be transformed. Let me spend some time on the ruler because man, this synagogue ruler He could only be described as a knucklehead. That's a biblical word, actually. Very theologically astute word. Knucklehead. The ruler gets angry at what takes place 
in the life of this woman. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. I mean, come on. Let's just say she had been in this synagogue for years. Let's just assume that she wasn't a first-time guest. Let's assume that she had been in the community for a while. This ruler of the synagogue would have watched her body change. He would have watched her body continue to bend. He might have even prayed for her in a previous day. If she was a part of this synagogue as a regular attender, he might have visited her and tried to help her. And here she is, receiving Jesus's work, receiving Jesus's power. And he gets angry, not because she is healed, but he gets angry because Jesus apparently broke a rule. That Jesus apparently did too much work on the Sabbath. Does this not sound like a knucklehead? Again, theologically sound word there. It would be more likely for him to celebrate and to rejoice And to give Jesus a high five. Because Jesus would have helped someone that he knew. And someone that he had observed suffer for so long. But instead, he is consumed with the rules. He's consumed with the regulations. He's trying to picture Jesus and pinpoint him as having done too much. This, my friends, is absolutely ridiculous to me. Knucklehead. Knucklehead. Verse 14, he says to the people, not to the Jesus and not to the woman, but to the others who have gathered in the synagogue, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed. I mean, does this not seem ridiculous? Can I get an amen? Is it ridiculous? It it reminds me of a doctor's office that says, we only do treatments from 8 to 8.15 in the morning. If you need anything else, come back a little later. I mean, it seems as though that this woman who is now radically different and who Jesus has radically changed, that this ruler is completely missing it because he's stuck on a commandment about the Sabbath. Now, he mentions you ought to work on six days. Let's, let's just talk about that for a second. He's quoting out of Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. Commandment number four, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's commandment number four. The word Sabbath or Shabbat means rest, means stop, means quit. For the Lord created all things in six days and on the seventh day, what did God do? He rests. He Shabbated. He Sabbathed. It's, it's in the Bible. That's what happened. It's the command. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a day of rest. It's a day of worship. It's a day of rest. It's a day to be set aside from your work. That is what the commandment said. That is what God's design was. But this fella, this ruler, has taken that a step further that no healing can be done on the day of rest. No healing can be done on the Sabbath. No transformation in a life of someone he knew can be done because that would be breaking a rule. I say it once, I say it again. Knucklehead. And Jesus has a response for this fellow. 
to the ruler, I believe Jesus in his wonderful way would say, what what is your deal? I mean, you're missing the point. The response of Jesus to this fella in verse 15 is, you're a hypocrite. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're two-faced. And then he points to the fact that even this guy and others like him, other rulers of the synagogue or other leaders of the religious community, even on the Sabbath, they will go to the barn, untie an animal, and take that animal to be watered. And his point is, you are more kind, more compassionate, more gracious to your animals than you are to people in your life. You're missing the whole point of the Sabbath. You're missing the whole point of God's commands. You are a knucklehead. Jesus didn't say it. I said it. And then he says in verse 16, shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a sister in the faith, shouldn't she be loosed? Isn't she better than an ox or a donkey who needs water? Friends, I want to maybe make a a jump here. Because the the feeling when we read the anger of the ruler is to go, my gosh, that guy, just a knucklehead. But we all have the same temptation to take the commands of the Lord and add things onto them, add rules onto them, add regulations onto them, add extras onto them so that we feel more justified and more right. And in doing so, we can miss the point. We can become knuckleheads. Let me just give you one example because I'm not so sure you agree with me right now, especially by the look of your faces. Let's just worry about for a second this gathering on the Lord's Day. We are a Christian people, not a Jewish people. We worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday, Resurrection Day, not on the Sabbath, Saturday. We worship on the Lord's Day. But can we make this gathering, this corporate experience of worship, can we take things and add to it so that we miss the main thing? I mean, we can get all tied up in the order of worship. Oh, well, we got to meet at this time and we got to sing these songs and they better not be too hip or cool or funky. Let's keep the drums at a minimum, guitars at a minimum. We need men and women singing. It's got to be three hymns, three choruses. We make regulations. Okay, we got to do communion every Sunday or we got to do communion every quarter or we got to do communion only when it's appropriate. We can get caught up in the regulations. Oh, it's got to be, we got to dress a certain way. We got to talk a certain way. We got to attend a certain amount of weeks in order to be holy unto God. And we can make regulation after regulation after regulation, rule upon rule, even in this corporate experience where we miss the main thing. What is the main thing when we gather together? The main thing is to lift high the name of Jesus that is above every name. What is the main thing when we gather together? It's to hear the Spirit of God from the Word of God so that our lives can be transformed. What is the main thing? It's to be in communion with our brothers and sisters, lifting high the name of Jesus, declaring His greatness, and being of one accord and of one mind for encouragement and exhortation. That is the main thing. Whether we meet at 9 or 10.30 or at 5 o'clock, friends, don't get hung up on the secondary things. 
whether we meet in a beautiful building, heated in AC, or out in a field under a palm tree. Don't get sideways on the secondary things. Keep the main thing the main thing. This man, this ruler, had completely missed the main thing. He was so focused on the rules, he missed a miracle. If I could have the praise team join me for this last point, this last comment. Jesus had a response to him, but it was after his response to her. If you still have your Bibles, I just want you to look once again to Jesus' care for this woman. Verse 12 and 13 is the description of how she is changed. She is straightened. As you study the word and as you study Jesus' work, pay careful attention to the manner in which he heals. Every, Every miracle that he does, there's another expression of God's love for us embedded within it. There's an expression that only we can see when we think carefully about the, the steps, the, the method, the manner in which Jesus did life transformational things. Verse 12 says, he saw her. He saw her. She had been in that synagogue maybe many times and maybe had been overlooked or maybe had been ignored. You know, there's a side of us in humanity when we see someone who is broken, we'd rather not look. We'd rather not see. But Jesus saw her. He saw her. He calls her over. He calls her unto himself. He calls her to come. To come to him. And then he speaks over her. Woman, you are freed from your disability. He speaks truth over her. He speaks healing over her. He speaks freedom over her. But then he also lays his hands on her back, on her body. He straightens her. Forgive me, I'm a little bit crude, but I think this is like the first example of a chiropractic adjustment in the Bible. That's what I hear, forgive me, probably not biblical. But I believe her body is straightened. The loosening of the chains, the binding of Satan is gone. He spoke the truth. He spoke the healing. He spoke the freedom. And then he lays his hands on her. And I think she comes upright and she looks straight. She looks at him. And then she begins glorifying God. And I don't think she just went, woo. I think she may have done a cartwheel. I don't know. You know, jumping up and down, glorifying God, praising the Lord. She hasn't been able to move in 18 years. And now she's made straight. And all the people are amazed, except for that ruler, that knucklehead. And it makes me remember, and it reminds me time and time again, it's the Lord's work in our life that makes our lives straight. Because because of sin, because of our brokenness, we all are bent over in some way. But through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his speaking truth over us, healing us, straightening us, he can make us what we have been intended to be. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. God is a, is a straightener in our lives. This when we come. And this morning, we're gonna do something that may seem a little unorthodox. I've asked a few of our brother deacons to come and if they are available, I just invite them to come to the front here. Because I believe one of the things that we might miss in our doing worship right each and every week, we might miss the opportunity to actually pray for people who are in serious need of healing and help. Or pray for others in our family that need a touch from God we might feel nervous and feel uncomfortable. We might even feel ashamed to speak the illness, speak the disease, speak the addiction. But the scripture says this in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. So this morning, we're going to allow that to be our time of response and invitation. I'm invite my deacons. They're going to be here. And I'm going to ask you just to remain seated as we sing a song. But if you would like someone to pray specifically for you, for someone in your family, someone in your life that needs a healing touch from God, we're going to follow the Bible's command today to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, to acknowledge him to intercede on their behalf. Would that be okay? Let's bow our heads now. And if you need to come, and if you need someone to pray for you, pray with you, you come. So Lord, we come into this time of prayer, knowing that there are needs that are some known and some that have never been spoken. I pray, God, that we would just come to you. You are the author. You are the healer. You are the helper. You are the ever-present help in trouble. You are a refuge. You are a strength. God, if there be some today who need prayer themselves, who need to hear from you and lay their burdens at your feet, I pray that they would be so bold to come and be prayed for there's some in their life, maybe not here physically, but in their homes and in their families, that they want to stand for and intercede on behalf, God, I pray that they would come. Let this be a house of prayer unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.